Well, the title of my sermon is the question on my mind as I studied all week. Why so many sacrifices? You begin in Leviticus and you just start reading through chapter after chapter and they just keep coming one after another and details and very specific instructions. And, and you're asking, well, what, you know, why so many sacrifices? That's my goal is to seek to answer that question in part, at least today, as we move through. I want to remind us the heart of Leviticus really deals with the holiness of God. The holiness of God. This is the, what I would call really the theme of all of Leviticus. God says in Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So the holiness of God is not just on display, but it is it is in his presence, in the camp. He is there. So how then can a sinful and unholy, unrighteous people dwell in the midst of a holy, holy, holy God? We learned last week in chapter 1, it is only by the blood of the sacrifice. We come into his presence only through the blood of another the sacrifice of the burnt offering that was set before the Lord to atone for, to cover our sin, done in faith, in anticipation of the sacrifice that would fulfill all of those. And so that's a bit of a, a setting for us as we move into chapters 2 through 6 here today. I also had a number of questions come up last week, and I wanted to speak just briefly to this. The question of resource and you know, these people are gathered around the base of Sinai. They're hearing these instructions, these commandments. How in the world are they going to have animals to do all of these things that God has called them to do? Where do they get all these animals? Aren't these the same people who were pleading for meat and the Lord bombed them with hail? Or oh, I, I keep saying it, quail, not hail. He bombed the, uh, the others with hail, but th this is quail, right? Why were they asking for meat if they have, in fact, enough to sacrifice to the Lord. So here's a, a little glimpse. Um, five offerings in view, the burnt, the grain, the peace, the sin, and the guilt offerings. Uh, we'll see those more clearly today. Let's back up to Exodus chapter 12, verses 36 and 30 through 38. And here's a little glimpse of, of the setting, the lay of the land. The Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. And thus they plundered the Egyptians. So here... God's chosen people are leaving the land of Egypt where they've been for 400 years and they take whatever they want. They're like on their way by, I'd like that golden goblet. It's yours. Take it. I'd like that uh, really cool, I don't know, piece of artwork. Okay, take it. Take whatever you want. They plundered the Egyptians. The people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. So quick math here, just so we know. We're talking at least 600,000 men. Multiply that out, add women and children, maybe 1.2 to 1.5 million people together. Add to that a mixed multitude who also went up with them. Who are these people? These are those that have chosen to follow the God, Yahweh, who has displayed himself with mighty power and revelation in the land of Egypt. They say, we're going with you guys. We've seen this. He decimated the world power of the day by his mighty hand. And so we are converting. We are going to follow. We are going to worship your God. They too went up with the Israelites, which means we're talking roughly two million people in the desert, in the wilderness, and add that, you have this, they went with very much livestock. I love the wording there. Very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Okay, so when you picture the parting of the Red Sea and two million people walking across on dry land, add to that a cattle drive, a big cattle drive, and shepherds with their sheep, Bring in the sheep and the goats, right? All of these animals are coming with them into the wilderness. Well, why didn't they eat them? That's a good question. Maybe they had been in Egypt so long that they were kind of seeing them as deities and afraid to eat them, or they were just resource thinking and like, well, why would I eat my riches? I don't want to eat up my flocks and herds. That's my wealth. 
So they grumbled to the Lord that they didn't have meat to eat when in fact they're hearing the mooing in the background and God bombed them with quail. Okay, so some answers there. What did all these livestock and, and, and herds eat? I don't know. Maybe they ate manna as well. The Lord sustained both the people and the animals in the wilderness as they were there. So some answers a little bit to our questions, but there's many more questions to, uh, to ask, and, and we don't know answers to all of those. Let's begin today by moving through these offerings. And uh, you can kind of see how it breaks out on your sermon notes. Most of them are chapters. The, second, uh, the final two uh, cover a little bit more than one chapter. I've enlisted my, my good virtual friend Max McLean and the ESV audio Bible from Crossway, and he is going to be reading on my behalf because if I try to read this much, my eyes go cross-eyed and you would, you would get lost. So um, Max McLean, you can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. Let's go ahead, Dan. Chapter 2 When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it, and put frankincense on it, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil, with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord, and when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion, and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of firstfruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. If you offer a grain offering of firstfruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your firstfruits fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. Okay. So, the grain or gift offering, as some refer to it. This is an offering that would always happen in conjunction with the burnt offering, which we studied last week. So you would come, you would bring your animal, you would sacrifice the animal, just all of those details that we gave last week. It would be burned upon the altar. And then following that, or really based upon that, you would bring this offering, the grain or gift offering. It was a voluntary offering, basically denoting gratitude for the forgiveness that you had just received in the burnt offering, right? So you're celebrating this gracious, kind gift of God to forgive your sins. It's a way of saying, not only do I believe this by faith, I embrace this, but I delight in this, and I want to say thank you. I want to delight, I want to worship you. No brokenness, no separation. Now we're face to face, atonement has been made. I delight in you, Lord. I worship you, and I honor you as sovereign in my life. I esteem you in your lordship and your forgiveness. And so they would bring this in a variety of forms, either uncooked or cooked. Um, so think, you know, unleavened bread or maybe tortilla or, you know, some various forms crumbled up and different ways to do that. Um, 
And then uh, it was no leaven or honey allowed, uh, no decay. Uh, sometimes people would say that the leaven or the honey, when burned, um, will quickly ferment in the fire. And so the, the no hint of decay or anything like that was to be burned before the Lord. But we also know that leaven often in the Bible represents the, the sin uh, of the world. And so the unleavened bread was to be unstained from the world, separated out. And so in their offerings, they were to be pure in that way. The salt was required. Uh, salt is an interesting thing. And he mentions this phrase, the salt of the covenant, the salt of the covenant. Well, salt is a preservative and would have been esteemed by the people of Israel, certainly in their situation, as precious and preserving. So when you bring your grain offering and it's sprinkled with salt, you're saying, Lord, I want to maintain, I want to preserve my part of this covenant. I am bringing it as a salted offering to preserve and keep and protect this relationship that we have. Uh, it's an interesting thing. This is the only offering of all of them that is not including a blood uh, aspect. There's no blood in this offering. But it is based upon the blood of the atoning sacrifice already committed. So how do we come? We come by blood. Once we're there and the blood has been applied, we delight. We worship. We say thank you. It is exactly the same for us today, is it not? We come into his presence through the blood of the Lamb. And here we are singing his praise, giving our gifts of, of a sacrifice of praise, we say, right? Let our lives be living uh, offerings for the Lord, a living sacrifice. The ritual was a handful of the grain was taken out and placed upon the fire. And then the rest of that grain or that bread was then given to the priests for their food to eat. So the grain offering, part of the voluntary triad of offerings, the burnt, uh, the grain, and then the third is the peace and fellowship offering. This too is a voluntary offering that would be occasioned upon repentance and sin. Let's see how this builds out. Take it away, Dan. Chapter 3. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering, as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of the peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. If his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord, and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places, that you eat neither fat nor blood. Okay. So when you woke up and decided to come to church this morning, you had no idea that you would hear so much about entrails. Okay? Think of the designer. 
God the designer, not just of each animal, but all of the entrails of the animal. Every single aspect of this animal has been designed and accomplished by God. He is the ultimate uh, surgeon or butcher in this sense. He knows what is where, and he gives very specific details and uh, instructions about what is acceptable to burn and what is acceptable to not burn, and, and, and which ones should go where. And it's just amazing to consider the detail that he gives here. So this is the peace or fellowship offering. Um, it truly a, a kind of a, a festive offering. Uh, it would as a voluntary celebration of covenant fellowship through atonement. So when they would come, they would sacrifice, lay their hand on the head of the sacrifice, kill it. The blood would be sprinkled. And then uh, specific parts of the sacrifice were given to be burned before the Lord, specifically the fat and the blood. Um, the blood was not to be eaten by the people of God. It was to be burned or poured against the sides of the altar. Um, also, the fat in this day, the fat of the animal was a delicacy. Uh, the Israelites esteemed that as one of the choice parts of the cut of, of, uh, of, you know, butchering up to get ready to barbecue. And instead of allowing them to eat that, God says, the choice part of the animal is mine. Bring that and burn it before me, especially the tail of the sheep. It's almost 100 percent fat. And God says, that's that's mine. That's for me. You shall eat none of the fat. The fat is for me. And so just consider the, the burning of that, that, that choice part of the animal. But this one is unique in the sense that after they had given what God had very specifically given instructions to be burned, they then had what was remaining to share together in a, a feast with the sacrificing mediator priest who was working on their behalf before the Lord and the, the family that was bringing the sacrifice. So then they would eat together. Those, the offerers, uh, the priest, they would eat. I don't know if they had their Traeger grill, you know, to finish cooking the meat or how they did that, but they're in the courts. They would eat this as a meal in the presence of the Lord. No brokenness, no separation, enjoying the fullness of peace and fellowship with God through the mediator, the priests and his work, and one another. It was a festive feast and uh, celebration. So it's kind of a, a of, the, of the offerings that you would bring, this one had a special place uh, where you would go and you would eat together in the courts there before the presence of the Lord. So this next one is long, okay? So hang in there. It's the longest that we'll look at today. It's called the sin, or some people call it the purification offering. Uh, let's, let's go for it. Chapter 4 And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed, a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and lay his hand on the head of the bull, and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull, and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting, and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, 
he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord, and the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus shall he do with the bowl. As he did with the bowl of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bowl outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bowl. It is the sin offering for the assembly. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar, and all its fat he shall remove, as the fat is removed from the peace offerings, and the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish, and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove, as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Okay, on to chapter 5. Chapter 5 if anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal, or a carcass of unclean livestock, or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him, and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt. Or if he touches human uncleanness, of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. 
He shall bring them to the priest, who shall offer first the one for the sin offering. He shall wring its head from its neck, but shall not sever it completely. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it, and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as its memorial portion, and burn this on the altar, on the Lord's food offerings. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven, and the remainder shall be for the priest as in the grain offering. Okay. Wow, we made it. If you've ever been on one of those read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year plans or something, and you start in Genesis, and you're like, okay, I could do this. And you get through Exodus, you're like, yeah, we're cruising. And then you get here, you're like, wow, this is way harder than I thought. Okay, that is some tough rowing through those verses. Repetition, clarity, precision. Think of this. A A few thoughts. First of all, there is value in the public reading of Scripture. Just hearing the Word of God read. Imagine if we were the Israelites and we were hearing these instructions from Moses on our behalf, from God. These are His words to us. So we value each word. It matters. It counts. The precision of these words is also revealing. God has very specific instructions. And it's so much so that it's almost overwhelming. How do you even process all these rules? This is hard to figure out. In fact, the words that happen here over and over is they're unintentional sins, unintentional sins. Well, it's not hard to conceive that that would happen when you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules that God gives his people to walk in obedience to. So we have categories here that build out for us, not just the sins of commission, the ones that we choose willfully even premeditatively i choose in the face of your clear teaching i reject it i sin it's kind of a high-handed sin not that in view here this is more like oh no it's wednesday and i forgot to do this and now i've broken the commandment what do i do well i'm guilty i'm guilty Or if I'm cooking this meal and the instructions are very specific, don't ever combine this with this, and I accidentally, just thoughtlessly, in, in a move, I put the spoon over in the wrong bowl. Oh, no, I've broken the law of God. Now, we might say, oh, man, lighten up. What's the big deal? But who are we to say that to a God who is perfectly holy and requires that we be holy? as he is holy. With the hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of laws, it's very realistic to think that there was an ongoing experience of realization of, I I sinned. I didn't even know it. I didn't mean to. Or I I did something, and then later on in the day, I realized, no, wait, that was wrong. That was sinful. So the category builds out for us Even unintentional sin requires repentance and atonement. That's what God's telling us here. There are days, friends, that we should be praying, Father, I not only confess the things that you have made clear that I have done that are wrong, the things that I didn't do that I should have done, but I confess as well to you the things that I did or didn't do that I don't even know about. They're sinful or wrong. There's a category for us here that it puts in view. The sin offering or the purification offering. It's a discovery of inadvertent sin that then calls us to action, to repent of it and to experience the purification through the atoning sacrifice that is then given with the goal of restoring the relationship. 
We're basically saying, Lord, I don't want anything to come between us. I don't want my sin, my failure to obey you, to give a breach of your commandments. And so there were varying degrees of sacrifices required. Did you notice that the sin of the priest required the most expensive and the, the, the sin of the whole community, a bull? was to be sacrificed. The blood there in both of those cases was brought in all the way into the, on the very edge of the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the floor right before you enter into the Holy of Holies. That's how serious these sins are. It reminds us that to whom much is given, much is required. The sins of a leader and the sins of individuals. So kind of a, a move from uh, those who have been given leadership or roles of representative nature. Think of the, the significance is if you have a priest who is your mediator and he has sinned, that's a big deal. If he doesn't address that, you're in danger because he's your mediator. On the, the day of atonement, when he would go in to sprinkle the blood, right, in the Holy of Holies, he would go in with a rope around his ankle in case the Lord would find him unacceptable and strike him dead and you would drag him out of the presence of God so the priests they were sinners too they sacrificed for their sins as well just like all of us cattle sheep goats birds fine flour it's the whole range of sacrifices that are to be given blood sprinkled fat burned on the altar, and then in this situation, at least the top two, all the rest of the animal is, is taken outside of the camp and burned. That's how serious the sins are of those in those positions. Okay, so the sin or purification offering. The last one we have here is not quite as long. It's the guilt or reparation offering. Let's finish up with these verses. He'll be forgiven and the remainder shall be for the priest, as in the grain offering. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. Chapter 6 The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, and any of all the things that people do and sin thereby. If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery, or what he got by oppression, or the deposit that was committed to him, or the lost thing that he found, or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full, and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord, a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent, for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty. The okay. Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Is that it? I think that's it, right? We made it. Good job. Good job. So, the guilt offering. Now, what's interesting is to try to distinguish what, what is the difference between the sin offering or the occasion of the sin offering and the guilt offering and it's actually very difficult to know you know when is it a sin offering when is it a guilt offering there is some distinguishing uh, factors here uh, to point out one 
for the guilt offering, atonement is also in view. Um, neither of these are voluntary. These are required sacrifices. As soon as you re- realize your sin, you repent of it and you bring your sacrifice. Um, but this one is for unintentional or even unexamined action that is sinful and would require reparation or a, a repayment either to the Lord himself or to somebody that you have sinned against in those different examples that are given, uh, those occasions. So the goal is to not allow any separation or uh, the words breach of faith between you and the Lord or a fence between you and another. Um, And so you would come with an unblemished ram. This is a a higher valued sacrifice than the the other one. This is a male uh, sacrifice or the equivalent, uh, okay? And then you would also bring a repayment of restitution, uh, adding 20% to it. Uh, So, interesting how that works. Um, The ritual was similar. The fat and the blood would go on the altar, and then the meat would then go to the priests for them to have as food. Uh, So, a fascinating thing you see unfold here, but I, I think it's helpful to note, not only is the Lord addressing sin, He's addressing guilt from sin. And that points us to something true and glorious about the work of the gospel and what Jesus has done as well. Both of these are in view. Both of these are in our experience. And both of them need to be addressed if we are to be close and walk in holiness with our God. Uh, So his, his function there is in view. So then let's go back to the question we started with. Why so many sacrifices? Why would he give all of the level of detail and the entrails and the lobe of the liver and this fat and that? What is this doing for us? Well, a few thoughts. Number one, it helps us to understand how truly pervasive sin is in our lives. When we don't understand this, we tend to compare ourselves more on this plane. We tend to see ourselves as fairly good people. In fact, if you ask uh, just an average American, hey, are you a good person? What is their response going to tend to be? Yeah, I'm a good person. You know, I don't this, I don't that. I've never killed anybody, you know. Compared to other people, I'm this, I'm that. That is not the standard of goodness that God is evaluating us by. The standard of goodness He holds us to is You shall be holy as I am holy. What is that? Perfect. I have yet to meet anyone in that category, especially the guy that I look at in the mirror. Not that. But there was one who was perfect. There was one. The pervasiveness of sin and really the purpose of this law God has given us in his revelation of this standard by which we are to live in holiness, a bar that none of us can live by. The law reveals our sin. It shows us how absolutely impossible it is for us to muster up righteousness in and of ourselves. We can't be holy as he is holy. That's the point. That's the point. So every time, whether purposeful sin or even unintentional sin, they would be reminded over and over, day after day after day, I am not holy, and He is holy. The function then of those sacrifices were in faith, that this God would show such grace, that that we could have truly an opportunity to repent of our stain and sin and, and disobedience and trespass and be forgiven. He doesn't have to do that. The role of faith is huge. It's not just the mechanics of the sacrifice, as I said last week. You don't just go through the motions. Okay, cut, blood, fat, burn, dip, pour, sprinkle, done. No, there's nothing there. It's your heart. It's what do I believe that God has said. First of all, I believe that he said that what I have done is wrong. I agree with him on that. Secondly, he has commanded me to go through all of these steps and I joyfully embrace that command and I obey him. And third, 
This sacrifice I offer, I offer in faith that indeed it will accomplish what he has promised it would. We know on this side of the cross that every single sacrifice that we have looked at today in addition to last week points us to the one sacrifice that would fulfill them all, Jesus Christ. And so the splendor of the cross, I believe, is the answer to the question. Why so many sacrifices? Here's the answer, friends. Because what God accomplished in his son on this cross is resplendent. It is glorious. We can't even begin to conceive of all of the things that he has done on the cross through his son. So Leviticus previews all of the implications of his fulfillment of Jesus and what he has done. So let's consider this. The burnt offering, as we saw last week, shows us that indeed Jesus is our atoning substitute sacrifice, the one who took upon himself our sins, the one who died the death that we deserved. He took the fire, as it were, so that we could be forgiven. That is set on display in Leviticus chapter 1. The second one, chapter 2, the grain or the gift offering. Jesus is indeed the greatest gift. And he was given, it was initiated by heaven, by God the Father. He gave his son while we were still sinners. Christ died for us, right? He's the gift given by the greatest giver. He is the foundation of our forgiveness. He is the joy. He is the hope. He is the reason that we can have this relationship restored. He's the reason we sing, right? So when we come into his presence with joy because we've been forgiven, it's all because of Jesus. Hmm. We can say thank you to God in the name of Jesus, through him. That's why we close our prayers. Everything we say to the Father, we pray in Jesus' name. You know, you can say that at the beginning of your prayer. All that I am about to pray, I pray in Jesus' name. That's how I come to you. I come in Jesus, in the name of Jesus, all that he has done. Now, the third, the peace or the fellowship offering, Jesus himself is our peace. It is only through him that we can have peace with God. It's through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can bring us back into covenant fellowship with the Father by his blood. A new covenant I give to you. How do I give it? In my blood. In my blood. As the grain offering shows us his body, the bread, right? The bread that has come down from heaven, just like the manna revealed. He says, I'm the bread of life. As you eat of me, look at this. The daily bread, day after day, delighting in him. The substance of our life depends upon his body that was given for us. And then the blood that he shed. We can have fellowship with God, peace with God, but only through the blood of Jesus. The sin or purification offering shows us that Jesus is, in fact, our only sin bearer who makes purification for us through his sacrifice. When we understand our sin, when we see the reality of it, we begin to understand Isaiah 53 and, and the, the setting upon him all of our sins, the, 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 the stripes that he took on our behalf. We have been healed as he carried our sin and buried in the grave. And the guilt or reparation offering Jesus not only atoned for our sin, but he restores what was lost. And I would add, and far more, far more. The restoration of relationship doesn't only ring out, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? No guilt for those who have Jesus as Savior. Sin is addressed, and so is guilt and condemnation. But it's more than that. We are restored in our relationship with God, but not like, like Eden, right? Eden was great, but it was incomplete. If we only ever had Eden, we would not see and delight in the mercy of God, for example. Mercy. He withheld 
what is due to us, the sinner, or his grace. He has bestowed upon us in kindness what we don't deserve, right? Think of the way that we understand his love. Far more beautiful now than even in Eden. The fellowship is greater now because of the backdrop of sin. This was the plan all along. It was always plan A. And it's satisfied, accomplished, fulfilled in Christ. So Leviticus chapters 1 through 6, they're all about Jesus. That's why so many sacrifices. He's putting the glory of the cross on our screen in all of its detail. Well, how do we respond to this then? In our day, we live on the other side of the cross. We know the Messiah's name. We know his name is Jesus. We know what he's done. We know that his sacrifice is a once-for-all sacrifice. So we don't find ourselves today in a temple with blood all over our hands, killing animals and trusting that the Lord would cover our sins and then back again the next day and the next day and the next day. We come boldly with confidence because his once-for-all sacrifice is sufficient. He has forgiven us all of our sin. How do we come? We come on God's terms. I'm just struck as I read these Levitical uh, instructions. They're very specific. They're very precise. There's no place for Israel to say, boy, Lord, uh, that's kind of a burden. Like, that's hard to keep up with. If you want to worship me, God says, this is how you do it. And all of it. We must come to God on his terms if we want to know his forgiveness. What, what terms has he given us in our day? Look at the simplicity of the gospel in its contrast to the law of the Old Testament. Look at the simplicity or the, the as Jesus said, come all you who are weak and heavy laden. Why would they be weak and heavy laden? Because of all of this, all of the law, all of the rules. How in the world do we do it? We are weighed down. We cannot carry that load. And Jesus says, exactly. That's the point. Come now. Come now. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that's the call. Trust in him. Place your faith upon him. He did the work. If you do that, you will not perish under the wrath of God. You will be forgiven and you will have eternal life. Fellowship, intimacy, reconciliation, restoration forever. What an amazing backdrop we have. We are privileged friends to live in the time that we live. The simplicity of the gospel. These Old Testament saints would look at us today running into the church, right? With our Bibles in our hands, singing praise to the Lord and say, what access you have. What liberty you have in Christ. What a joy it is. We worked so much harder back here. All the blood, all of the rules and the laws and the labors. Hmm. We are blessed people to live in this day. So to close with, let's just look at these categories. We are given revelation of sin and separation, both our sins of commission and our sins of omission. The, oops, I didn't catch that sin. It's a problem. It has to be addressed. Even that shows us how rampant our sin is and our need for a Savior. Sin is separating. Our sin left unchecked will separate us. It will wall us off from intimacy with God. The Christian life is one of continual repentance. It, it, it looks this way. The victorious Christian life, friends, think of this. This is the victorious Christian life. Oh God, I come and I acknowledge my sin. I repent of it. I agree with you that it was wrong. It was sinful. It was offensive. 
and worthy of your wrath and punishment. But I thank you for your son, Jesus, who took upon himself that very sin and paid it in full for me. I am forgiven, O oh God, because of his finished work. And I look to you in faith. I confess it to you. And I wash my hands clean once again, walking with you. I don't want anything to come between us. Friends, that is the work of the gospel every day. It's the air that we breathe. It should define the Christian life for us as the blood of the sacrifice defined the life of those in the Old Testament. Redemption and restoration, these are beautiful things. And fellowship, fellowship, intimacy with God, to know Him, to delight in Him, to talk with Him and walk with Him, to adore Him. One of the reasons we love Sundays, right? We come and we sing. We can do that only because of what has been accomplished here. It's the focus of all that we do. It's why we call ourselves a Christ-centered church. If we don't get that right, it all crumbles and we waste our time. Praise God for the glory and really the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray if there would be any here today who have yet to acknowledge their sin, their rebellion, their separation from you, their unrighteousness and transgression. I pray that they would even now by the work of your Holy Spirit be convicted of that sin. Move and stir, Lord, convict of sin. Open eyes to see the need for a Savior like Jesus. I pray that even in that place through your Spirit, you would stir uh, eyes to see Christ in his glory. The work that he has accomplished on the cross for people like me and those here who have looked to him in faith. Sinners and rebels and haters. Lord, we need your salvation and we, we delight in your son Jesus. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. And, and we will not come before you unless we come through him. And so I pray today that all here in this room and in the hearing of this sermon would embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord, would turn from running away from you and turn toward you and bend their knee in repentance, agreeing with you of their sins and offense and looking to you in faith for forgiveness and life and fellowship and intimacy forever. We delight in you, Father. Thank you for your kindness to us. We delight in you, Jesus. Thank you for your obedience and your kingship. We delight in you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for your faithful ministry in our lives. We delight in your word, O oh God. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.